Good morning, everyone. It's been such a wonderful experience to walk through this sermon series as a church family. And for those of you who are joining us here for the first time today, our current series called Love Well, A Theology is focusing on crosswalks and statements. These statements are the tenets that we use to navigate creating communities that love well. Love well is our one word mission and vision statement. Because we like to practice what we preach, um, we're doing an in-depth study of each statement to find the biblical and theological grounding behind them. So since the new year, we have studied our first three statements. Pastor Patty kicked us off with statement one, which is crosswalk will be a community of belonging. Pastor Tim from our Redlands campus followed up with statement two, crosswalk will be a community where people learn and grow in an authentic relationship with God. And last week, Pastor Uriel spoke to us about number three, crosswalk will be relevant in living out the ways of Jesus in our time and place. Today, we're going to be diving into our fourth statement, which says, crosswalk will be a community that lives beyond herself by caring and advocating for the powerless, oppressed, and abandoned. These last three weeks, we've been in conversation about what our community here at Crosswalk looks like now and what we hope it will look like in the future. We've assessed and implemented our values. We've walked together as we've worked to create an identity of belonging, of growth, and of relevancy. But today's statement is a little different because it's the one that pushes us beyond our church here and into the world around us. It asks us to walk out of the safety that we found together and put our hearts on the line for those who need our intentionality and our efforts to impact their world. James 1.27 tells us, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. This is the first verse from our study guide this week, and I absolutely love this verse. In fact, I love this verse so much that I wrote a 30-page paper on this singular text in my undergrad. That was a lot to unpack. But I'll tell you that as I study it in depth amidst the Greek grammar charts and the linguistic anomalies that I found, I found one theme that ran throughout the entirety of my study. And that was that caring for the oppressed is a way of life that intrinsically lends itself to the footsteps of Christ. The instructions of this verse may seem daunting, caring for orphans and widows, the downtrodden, refusing worldly corruption, but Jesus lived a life that gives us the blueprint for a life of care and advocacy. Isn't that amazing? And the author of James saw this. And in this verse, they state the thesis for their entire book based on the life of Christ. When we care for others, it draws us nearer to the heart of the Savior. Simple as that. God has given us creative license to love the world around us in our own individual and unique, wonderful way. But when we feel lost or overwhelmed, when the pain and suffering feels too heavy to pick up on our own, we're not left in the dark because the crux of James 1.27 encapsulates this comfort with its twofold argument. The first of those arguments is that we must protect orphan and widows. And what I think that means is that it is the duty of Christians to both individually and systematically participate in the elevating of the marginalized in our society. And the second is that Christian life is empty 
without action. And that is not at all to say we are not saved by grace through faith. But grace serves a function, and if it is not inspiring us to act in accordance with the one who gave that grace, it's not fulfilling its full, powerful function in our Christian lives. Simply put, the application of James 1.27 enhances our lives, the lives of other individuals, and the systems that we exist within and create. This verse reveals the heart of Christ by encouraging action that leads back to his character, and by doing so provides Christians today with a beacon of love that leads to a better world. As Christians take this message to heart, the difference they make on an individual, local, and societal scale draws them into even deeper, closer relationship with the one who set that example in the first place. This creates a beautiful cycle that leaves a legacy of love and a world of difference in its tracks. So with this powerful call to action in mind, it's up to us in conversation with Jesus to learn why and for whom we are advocating. As individuals, we lean into the unique passions and strengths we are divinely equipped with to serve the needs to which we have been drawn. As a campus, we search within the community of Portland and work to alleviate the worldly pains we see around us. And finally, as a piece of a larger crosswalk community, we strive to emulate and uplift our values to bring heaven's kingdom closer. Knowing the importance of advocacy, we're faced with the next step. How do we make advocacy our own? How do we make it personal? Jim was baptized into my church when I was very young, and he brought with him unmatchable energy levels and full-on investment. Jim had experienced a loss of community shortly before finding his way into ours, and he never took for granted the relationships he built as he grew to love Jesus and his church more and more. It was beautiful. Jim was a doer, and it wasn't long before he was involved in the church's weekly lunch program where they would take food down to the park for those in need in the downtown of our city. But while Jim's excitement for ministry grew, in the church as a whole, it was waning. Apathy and exhaustion began to wear away at the leadership and the community. And soon the volunteer base for Jim's lunch shrunk down to just him. Alone in the kitchen week after week, he relied on a single recipe he knew best, egg salad sandwiches. Every week, he would leave church or Sabbath school and he would go down to the dark church basement and soon the aroma of boiled eggs and mayonnaise would waft up through the vents to greet the rest of us in the sanctuary. And people began to complain, but they could not stop Jim. He would wrap up all his sandwiches and he would drive them downtown by himself. Those who needed lunch, a warm smile, an inviting conversation, knew which park they could find it in on Sabbath afternoons. For two years, hardly anyone in our church stepped in to help Jim with his sandwiches. And still faithfully, week after week, he was present, not just to alleviate the physical needs of those who lived on the edges of our community, but to live out Jesus to them in a way that fed their souls. Jim didn't really enjoy making sandwiches. He didn't relish the thought of another morning spent alone in the cold, dark kitchen while the rest of his church spent time in community yards away. But he did cherish the people that he knew wanted sandwiches. 
he relished the chance to step into their lives, crossing the bridge of connection with a slimy, plastic-wrapped package of bread and egg salad. He didn't perform this service simply for the sake of providing our church with an outreach project. Clearly, nobody was interested. He didn't do this because it was the way it had always been done. He had to pave his own way. Jim made sandwiches once a week because he had experienced the love of Jesus. And if sandwiches allowed him to share that love with other people, sandwiches he would make, it was never about the sandwiches. It was about Jesus, sharing Jesus, loving like Jesus, creating relationships like Jesus. In the end, several people from our larger community noticed Jim's efforts, and they came alongside him to grow the lunch program. And then they joined the church. They brought new life and energy to a dying community. Because Jim's love for Jesus spilled over into the world around him, his church was rebuilt. His efforts flourished. And most of all, he created meaningful and lasting relationships with those who may not have otherwise encountered the character of Christ. All he ever did was advocate for those in his sphere of influence in the way that Christ had cared for him. And that love that he emulated, God took it and he built it into a more edifying and growing experience than I'm sure Jim had ever imagined in the first place. Jim began his journey of advocating for his community because he knew what it meant to be without it. So wherever his ministry took him, to the park with the homeless, to church meetings filled with indecision and frustration, to experiences throughout the community where he worked to make a difference, he strove to create that community in Christ for others that he had discovered himself. His advocacy was tailored to his own personal experience. We all have a story that brought us here to Crosswalk today. We all have lived experiences that open our hearts to grow and love on a unique part of our community here. It is clear that the root of caring for others is not found simply in following the footsteps of tradition, how things have always been done. It's clear that you can't implant the passions of others into your own heart, drawing your motivation completely from their joy alone. It's up to you to allow Christ to fuel your empathy and lead you into the stories and lives of others, which he has specifically designed you to make a difference in. And so as we circle back to explore another dimension of James 127, I encourage you to hold these questions. Where is Jesus leading my heart? What piques my empathy for others? I'd like to read the verse again to keep it fresh in our minds. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. We started off today exploring the twofold thesis of our verse in James, which uncovered the cyclical process of finding life in Christ then learning to love others as he has loved us, and then drawing even closer to him as we use that love to empower the downtrodden in our spheres. But this verse is not just informational, it's directive. 
it is, a, it is clear that this verse invites us into a deeper relationship with Christ through serving others on both an individual and communal level. But it goes even deeper with the mention of specific underserved people groups, orphans and widows. It is important for each of us, both on our own and together as a church, explore where God is leading us to be involved on a local level. But we are also called to expand our thinking beyond our singular communities and learn to advocate for the powerless, oppressed, and abandoned in the world and systems that we live in. I'd like to share some historical context that I gleaned in my study of this verse to clarify the author's meaning when he speaks of orphans and widows. The original audience of this text would have been early Judeo-Christian house churches, which sprung up shortly after the death and resurrection of Christ as Christianity began to grow and spread. Both the Jewish roots of these groups and the Roman world that surrounded them created a culture that valued wealth, race, and power over love, equality, and compassion. The Jews tended to uplift the spiritually elite, which would have included the rabbis and teachers of the law, and the wealthy priestly class, which would have included the Sadducees that advocated for the crucifixion of Christ. The Romans, on the other hand, building on the spread of the Greek culture around them, prioritized Roman citizenship, a race issue, and the caste system, a wealth and status issue. The issues of these two groups combined in the world of early Christianity made for a very subjugating atmosphere for those who did not fall neatly into the order of society. In looking at the orphans and widows named in James, we find that these are the exact groups that this audience would have known did not quite fit. Both groups lack a central money-earning figure to create a comfortable and honor-worthy lifestyle. Both groups lack a male head of household from whom they can hold their status in society. Both groups would have been seen as spiritually lacking due to their unfortunate circumstances. In fact, Jesus was ostracized by both Jews and Romans for demonstrating the uplifting of lower classes, especially orphans and widows. Clearly, the world in which these words were written would not have been a soft landing place for the orphan nor the widow. And knowing this, we're led to ask the question, who are the orphans and widows today? Who in our world right now is being trampled upon by self-seeking and prejudice? 2,000 years ago, it was these two groups who experienced some of the most widespread societal neglect. But this verse is not speaking only to orphans and widows. It's speaking to all who have had the barriers and boundaries set against them simply for who they are and what the world has taken from them. It is speaking to those our world has not loved well. As I was preparing for today and reflecting on the experience of collective communities who suffer the draining and often dangerous effects of marginalization, I was drawn to the story of a little girl in the Old Testament. Several times in the books of the prophets, we see God ask his earthly representative to live out a prophecy. And so is the case of Hosea the prophet, who married Gomer, who left Hosea as Israel had left God, therefore living out the prophecy. And the tragedy of their story is really difficult to understand, but I don't want to talk about them today. I want to talk about their baby girl, Loruhama. Hosea 1.6 tells us, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Loruhama, which means not 
loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. A brand new, perfect infant, labeled unloved from the day she came into the world. Her fate, her definition, hanging in the hands of a delinquent nation. I can't imagine the grief she experienced as she grew and learned the meaning behind her name. Hearing those words from her parents' lips every single time they spoke to her, reminding her that she was just another casualty in a war that she did not start. Lo Ruhama, tokenized for the benefit of a nation who scorned her on behalf of her mother's offensive actions and her father's uncomfortable prophecies, mislabeled as unloved because of a birthright she did not ask for. She did not choose to be born, and yet she was punished simply for being the person that she was. But God had other plans for Lo Ruhama. In the next chapter, Hosea 2, God details what Israel deserves for their wrongdoings. They have left him, they have gone and worshipped idols, and they have broken the covenant. And the details of that covenant um, clearly state that God is within his rights to abandon them. But we know our God is slow to anger, abundant in love, forgiving of our sins, because instead he invites his people back to a new covenant, one of restoration and equity, as he says, in that day, I will, you will call me husband and no longer master. He invites them into eternity, saying, I will betroth you to me forever in righteousness, justice, love, compassion, and faithfulness. And finally, after this grandiose display of ultimate forgiveness to those who do not deserve it, those who had walked away, he turns to the innocent and unloved, Lo Ruhama. Hosea 2.23 says, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. The unloved, the oppressed, the abandoned, the innocents caught in crossfire, the broken spirits dragged down to desperation, those systematically left behind, those called not God's people. God is the God of advocacy, of uplifting, of triumph over sin for them. That is our God, and that is our example. So I ask you again, to look around you. Who has the world told you is not God's people? Who has the world told you should be left unloved because who they are says that they do not deserve it? Several years ago, my friend Katrina was an addict. The struggles of her childhood had made life difficult for her and things worsened with the teen pregnancy. Eventually she moved in with a friend another young mother, and they attempted to parent alone together, but both were using, and they only brought each other deeper into addiction, constantly searching for harder and longer-lasting substances. And just when Katrina had reached the end of her rope, a startling encounter with Jesus brought her new hope and the realization that something had to change, and that's when she came into my life. She showed up at church one day, asking incredibly difficult questions and excited to grow. 
And as her faith blossomed, I watched her go from the person asking all the questions about Jesus to the person answering those questions for other people. She knew who had saved her, and she was bursting to share that saving grace with the community she had left behind when she came clean. Katrina knew what it meant to live on the edges of society. As a young single mom, she could have ended up another statistic, but Christ had stepped in and intervened for her, and she knew he would intervene for others who had walked that path with her. Instead of pushing her experience away and hiding it, she shared her story as a message of hope. And slowly, her lived experience began to resonate with those who had experienced similar struggles. The chairs of our church began to fill with new faces, and many were struggling to get clean, and many were asking the difficult questions that Katrina had stumped us with when she first set foot in the door, but all saw the difference that Jesus could make for them, because they saw what a difference he had made for someone they considered to have walked their road. You may not have a story like Katrina. Each one of us has a unique coming to Jesus story, and they're all beautiful. But whether it's firsthand experience or that of a loved one or that of a community that you hold dear, we've all witnessed the effects of marginalization, of oppression, of selfishness in our society today. There are so many issues that divide our world on a collective level. And as we watch those issues separate and create hate, God calls us to be different. On a personal level, like Katrina, we look at the communities close to our heart and we ask how we can make a difference by entering into the narratives of those most pushed aside and loving them through intentional, Christ-centered action. On a church level, we search within our community here and our broader community of Portland with open hearts and minds as we learn to love each other, our city, and our crosswalk community. On a world level, we use our voices to uplift and share the radical love of Jesus, which counteracts oppression. And as we do those things, it's important for us to remember that advocacy is more than an outreach event. It's more than holding a sign. It's more than an egg salad sandwich. It's even more than an emission trip, drive, or relief effort. It is all of those things. It can look like all of those things, but at its very core, to advocate means to know and act with the knowledge that every single human being, regardless of their identity, their story, or even their mistakes, was created in the image of God and is worthy of love, respect, and grace. Here at Crosswalk, we believe in and promote this depth of advocacy because we see that the world around us is broken and that the powerless, oppressed, and abandoned are further trampled by a sinful world every day. We recognize that God has not called us to recoil and run from this sin that creates marginalization. That's not what the author of James meant when he said to refuse to let the world corrupt us. Rather, we know that God has shown us we must put on the character of Christ and walk deeper into the fire because if Jesus left no one behind, neither will we. Christ tells us himself in Matthew 25, 40, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it for me. To advocate is to see the Spirit of God in every living thing around you and to treat them accordingly. It is to absorb the love of Jesus so much that his desires become yours and you cannot help but step lovingly into the narratives of others bringing hope and healing. 
And then it is acting on the basis of those narratives to create effective and passionate systems that uplift the downtrodden. There are so many ways to get involved in advocacy for our community here at Crosswalk, and I or any one of our other pastors would love to talk with you if you want to explore what getting involved looks like for you. But I want to leave you with the thought that your involvement, your outreach, your missions, they don't start with the work of your hands. They start with the stature of your heart in genuine connection with Jesus. Together, let's get to know Jesus so that his love can be our own. Together, let's create systems of care that are sustainable and relevant as we work to uplift. Together, let's draw nearer to the God that loves those the world does not so that we can follow in his footsteps of loving well. Please pray with me. Dear God, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to the suffering around us. Empower us to be agents of your love in a broken world. Lead us, lead our church to the missional opportunities you have in store for us. But most of all, Draw us nearer to you so that we can draw near to those you would have us love. We love you so much in your holy name. Amen.